Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So there's something about the dinner party. It, it is a rite of passage. It's one of the ways you know you're grown up, right? You can have a dinner party. You actually have matching chairs at your table. Uh, maybe you have some halfway decent china you got in your wedding or something. There's, there is a, a passage to adulthood that runs through the idea of the dinner party. It's also just been around forever. I mean, I just got through doing a show about the Roman Empire, so I've got to mention the Feast of Trimalchio. And, and Trimalchio, which is in Betronius's Satyricon, that shows you the way the dinner party is also kind of a flex. Trimalchio is a former slave, um, and he's become quite wealthy and very ostentatious, and he kind of tries to out-dinner party or out-feast everybody else um, significantly. F. Scott Fitzgerald had uh, Tremalchio in West Egg as the working title for what became the Great Gatsby. That idea, too, of the, the dinner party as a flex, a way of showing what your resources are, what kind of china you own, what kind of Gosford Park you know, dinner you can put on. I think it's, it's there all the time. But the rest of us are mere mortals. We live in the world. Uh, we give dinner parties or we go to them. And we're going to talk about that today and maybe whether the idea is a little bit endangered. Uh, the dinner party has been pronounced dead before and probably will be again. But here to get us started with the life of the dinner party is Rand Richards Cooper, a fiction writer, contributing editor at Common Wheel, uh, restaurant critic for the Hartford Current, and a regular guest uh, on the Colin McEnroe Show, and giver of celebrated dinner parties. So, Rand, welcome back to the Colin McEnroe Show. Hey, Colin. Thanks. I'm, it's good to be here, especially with a glass of rosé. So you take – I mean, I've known you for many years. You you do take pride in in at least thinking through a lot of different elements that lead up to a successful dinner party. Maybe just run through a few of those elements. I mean, it ranges from guests to menu to maybe theme. Talk about all of those. You know, I was thinking um, – uh, Colin, in your helpful intro with, with Tramalki, I was thinking about the different kinds of dinner parties that we go to and that we enjoy. Some of my friends throw in, in the West End in Hartford, where we live, terrific potluck parties that are just completely free-form parties. And I think of a couple friends in particular who I think of as terrific partygoers of that kind of party. On the other hand, there are more formal dinners. And I tend to, I think, try to combine those two things. That is to have perhaps a more structured party than the typical West End um, potluck free-for-all, which I do love, um, and and have a, you know, a more set meal and set places at the table. But then I hope that it, that it then degenerates a little bit in, into <laughs> more of a free-for-all. So I, I, I like to have a sort of set, set form and then, and then, um, and then gradually deconstruct it a little bit as the night goes on. The ultimate goal of any party giver is that you you never you want people to never want to leave. And Colin, you know probably 
everyone does, to go to a dinner party where all you want to do is leave. It's an excruciating thing. Uh, so all all people who throw parties have different strategies for trying to prevent that from happening. And and we should say you're a really good cook. You're somebody who writes about food and has traveled the world enjoying food. And uh, one of the things that I, uh, strikes me is about those two parties, that dichotomy that you just set up. I think when we're younger, we do more of the former. And, and there's sort of maybe a, a liminal period where, you know, we're, you know, we're maybe we're married and starting our adult lives. and But it's like all we can do to really make up a big pot of spaghetti sauce and have six people come over. And that's just great anyway. But I feel as though, and maybe I don't know whether it's a Connecticut thing or an East Coast thing or an American thing, there's a performative quality to dinner parties. I mean, the people who are really good at cooking, like you, you really put on this amazing spread of just wonderfully thought out courses of the meal. Uh, and it's it's all beautifully done. And maybe there's uh, some young person named Council walking around uh, serving you things. And, and it's just – and sometimes I'm at, I'm at the dinner party and I'm thinking the effort of reciprocating – not just your dinner parties, but the, well, lots of people's. I think the effort of reciprocating <laughs> – is daunting. The idea of kind of just being able to put on that meal, you know, and, and have it just go so wonderfully and seamlessly, it, it might be a little intimidating to somebody less skilled. And, and I wonder if that kind of puts a crimp in how people socialize. Um, I don't think, I hope it doesn't put a crimp in it at my parties. Um, some of the some of the parties, I, I sent you some menus. You know, there is in the West End of Hartford an annual fundraiser called the Dine Around. And you pay um, a not insignificant amount of money. It goes to fund the West End Civic Association. And I think there's the feeling if you're throwing a party that that since people are paying $100 to come to your house, you want it to be special and not just, you know, put a tin of lasagna in front of them. And and there are stories about these terrible parties where the, where the person apparently didn't understand that a, a certain level of effort was required and just put the, put the lasagna out there. I generally use mine, you know, as you know, Colin, for years, I worked as a culinary travel writer for Bon Appetit, and, um, and and those were assignments like you know go to the Greek islands for eight days, eat as much as possible, interview some chefs, and produce a narrative. Um, pretty much the greatest greatest job ever. Without fail, I would come back from those trips with some meal uh, or or ingredient that I hadn't really eaten before, and and then and then I would make that again and again and again for, for weeks. So I used the occasion of these more formal dinner parties. Uh, in the West End dining series to to sort of resurrect a whole bunch of food and travel memories. You know, I think we all have experienced sometimes the memory of a meal is kind of inextricably tied to a number of, of non-specifically culinary things, where we were, who we were with, were we with someone we were in love with, we were, were we with our three best pals, were we in um, you know, a, a little cafe in, in, in some foreign city where what otherwise might have been an absolutely mundane plate of, you know, ravioli with sage and butter sauce was transmogrified by the beauty of the surroundings and the specialness of the trip. And so you come home with these food and place memories. I love using a dinner party, you know, to try to recreate them. And they also that also conduces to a lot of stories, you know, around the dinner table at any party that. I'm guessing you care about and any party that I care about and have loved, ultimately, the, the great treat that we're all consuming is each other's presence and each other's conversation. So, you know, everything you're doing, in addition to pleasing people with with food, is to try to provide an occasion to spur that conversation. I will say I vastly prefer attending other people's parties <laughs> to, to to giving my own Um 
one thing I'm really bad at, um, and and I really admire party givers who can do this well. I'm a terrible multitasker, and I'm also a little bit of a control freak. Um, several friends of mine are people who can hang out in the kitchen cooking for the dinner party to come and welcoming you being in there, having a drink, talking with them, helping them. So there, my friend Catherine Blinder, who's also your friend, who I consider to be just about the best dinner party host I know, um, part one of her great virtues as as a host a hostess is you can hang out with her in the kitchen while she's preparing the meal and you can all drink and nibble and talk and it can be five people talk. i don't i can't deal with that at all <laughs> i'm getting the stuff ready in the kitchen i want you to get the hell out it's i don't I can't even listen to your conversation um so so for me when i'm at someone else's party since i have no responsibilities and and by the way my wife molly generous person that she is she's the person who if you're throwing the party she's going to be helping you out cleaning up afterwards helping you serve doing everything when i'm at someone else's party i don't want to do anything i just want to <laughs> sit back hang with friends and talk and and be served although i've and, been to dinner parties where people struggled to get out into the kitchen and help with the dishes just because of what was happening at the dinner table i mean it all depends on a felicitous and and convivial conversation going on that you don't want to leave to go out to the kitchen and i want to just back up here and just talk a little bit about the idea of guests because there's also several different ways to approach guests and you've already alluded to them one of them is yeah let's have everybody in the neighborhood let's have you know three other couples who live near us or just something like that or let's have the people we always have over at this time of year or something like that. And then there's the curated guest list. There's the, the the scenario where the host thinks, well, those people might enjoy meeting these people, you know, and then maybe there's sort of another couple that does has some other purpose. And and I know that you've done that kind of thing too, where you you're trying to match food with wine and and food with food, but it's also people with people. And and say something about that. Well, I will confess to really liking that. It's not the only kind of party that that we throw over here, but it is one kind of party. And Colin, there's inevitably this moment if we're setting the table with a certain amount of formality, where you know I've made. Let's say there are going to be eight people there, and I've made the name cards, and then there comes that delicious sort of dating game moment when you're just putting the note, the the place cards around the table, and you try this and you try that, and you imagine, well, how's she going to talk with him? Ooh, that might not work too well. Let's switch them around. But wait a sec, now you're next to a spouse. Um, I take. A kind of mischievous delight in this. Um, of you have to. Uh, one consideration is who are the extroverts and who are the introverts, um, and and how are you going to you know match them up? I I'm an extrovert um, and my wife is is an introvert, um, and so you you know that that's the sort of a fundamental category of social life. You need a to have a good balance of extroverts and introverts, and then know how they're gonna how they're gonna mesh together. Um, um, or you can you can invite Colin, you can invite you and get an extrovert and an introvert in one, um, uh, two, two in one. But, you know, for my for my wife, for for whom certain kinds of parties are a real trial. And as she constantly points out, the technical characterological definition of the extrovert is the person who derives, takes out energy from a social situation. And the introvert is the person who has to expend energy to get through a social situation. Um, so I would I often try to put sometimes one introvert next to an extrovert because the introvert can just kind of hang there and absorb or interestingly two introverts um, you know, next to each other because 
they can then sort of define a small, quiet, private conversation there between the two of them, <laughs> which is often a survival strategy for the introvert at a dinner party. So it, it is something that, you know, I, I do think about. I'm wondering if you think that there is a good a social good that comes out of the idea of dinner parties apart from or above and beyond people just having a really good time and maybe not wanting to leave and and learning a new recipe and meeting a new person, or maybe that is part of the social good. In other words, if we have a lot of dinner parties, if we host and go to a lot of dinner parties, do you think, is it quixotic to suggest that it might improve society? And if it's not quixotic, how would it improve society? Well, interestingly, you know, if you think about movies that center on dinner parties, um, a lot of them, if not most of them, uh, are about dinner party catastrophes. You know, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or uh, uh, The Celebration, that Thomas Vinterberg film about a family celebrating dad's 60th birthday, it, it just deteriorates into uh, confessions of sexual abuse and incest and um uh, or, or, or the Hannibal Lecter sequel where they eat Rayleigh on his brain. Uh, so, so there's something about the dinner party that conduces to uh, to a sort of a, a portal to a disaster and even even to terror. Um, but the, the actual dinner party is is you know salutary in in many ways. And one is um, you know introducing people who don't know each other but who are who are part of the same community. And we've done that at, at almost all of our parties. Um, and, and, you know, so that's, and, and in a non like professional networking way, you, you know, you know how you're at an event, you become suddenly aware this is really just about like professional networking. You suddenly makes you just want to leave. Um, but this is just about, you know, a party where some people don't know each other is about human networking. And it's also about, um, cherishing and preserving. It's sad that we have to talk about preserving this real in-depth, um, leisurely, unpressured conversation. You probably saw that piece in the Times the other day by the restaurateur who who, um, who talked about the future of restaurants um, being places where essentially the whole experience is going to be compressed and fast. And this was a guy whose traditional restaurants hadn't been able to make it. He he ended up opening places that are sort of like the Doro restaurants in our market, which are terrific places, but which emphasize quality food at hyper speed mm -hmm. and this the guy the the chef said in his new restaurant model um you you order as soon as you're at the door and yes you you have a set table but the food is delivered basically once you get there and he said that this eliminated 20 minutes of profit killing dead time um between the people sitting at the table and their them getting their food well you know that 20 minutes of profit killing dead time used to be called dinner conversation mm -hmm. And and as you know, Colin, if if you're at a party that goes on for three hours, four hours, five hours around a dinner table, that results in kinds of conversation that have an an, an architecture. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, that, that, you know, that have a um, a script or an unscripted nature or a melodic flow that that increasingly isn't isn't part of human interactions in our culture. Um, so so I think it has. <laughs> you know, a a civilizational preservation role in um, in resisting the implacable attenuation of uh, of forms of language 
uh, that that that's part of the the efficiency of of our culture. One thing that I always feel terrible about is every once in a while. Well, you know, for example, I met Gary Greenberg at uh, I think one of your dinner parties, and he's wound up being on the show a whole bunch of times. Um, and as a result of that, so that's like a tangible thing. But yeah. every once in a while, you meet. Like I met this wonderful, wonderful guy at one of the very few dinner parties I've been to in the last three or four years. Um, and he was just fascinating. We just clicked and hit it off. And he said to me something like, I don't usually say this, but yeah, you know, we should talk again or something. And then we never did. There's, and it has a lot to do with my own social anxiety and whatever. But there is something very sad about that, that in the, in the fullness of the moment at the dinner party, you think, oh, yes, this is somebody who I could become friends with. And then you just don't. And I really want to ask you a question about the survival of this form. Do you think your daughter will host and go to dinner parties uh, the way that you have done. You know, there's this kind of idea, too, that millennials and, and Zers and, I guess, Gen Alpha coming online here, they, they don't necessarily have the resources. They don't necessarily have the space in the places that they live. They don't really think about this thing that way, maybe because they're young. Uh, maybe they'll start to. But I, I, I wonder your thoughts about the, the durability of the idea of the dinner party. So the desire to be together in groups and to connect with each other in in ways that for, that work, for instance, doesn't necessarily make possible, I think is an inextinguishable part of 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 the human being. The desire to celebrate communally with food. Um, so I, I don't think it's going away, and I don't think. You have to have terrific resources beyond your imagination, um, and 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 you can make it. So I'm I'm going to a dinner party this Saturday that Peter Roos, who's the head of the Mark Twain House, is hosting. We we actually won this in a in a raffle, and he's cooking a bunch of he and his wife are preparing a bunch of meals that represent things that Mark Twain would have eaten at dinner parties of of his. And a certain certainly a bunch of time is going to go into that, uh, and 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 some resources. And in between courses, he's going to say a few things about about Twain and 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 read a few excerpts. Um, but you could do a very low cost version of this for a bunch of people who are into Twain, who are still going to read the passages, say what they love about Twain, eat or drink something that is referred to in some of uh, Twain's writing, and 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 have a blast. And uh, and and I think I think people will not stop, despite the fact. I mean, the, to me, the one big danger of this, and I won't go into this, it's a topic you and I have handled many times before, but the 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 inroads that, uh, that digital devices have made upon people's competence in dealing with each other face-to-face -face is a bit of a challenge for this. But, you know, maybe they'll just do these do these events uh, uh, digitally, <laughs> but they will still do them. So one last question. Uh, so you, every week you read the New York Times Book Review, and the New York Times Book Review, they always feature an author, and there's sort of a Q&A, and the penultimate or ultimate question is invariably dream dinner party, which is interesting, too, that it's enough of a model that the New York Times persists on asking authors who, living or dead, uh, you would invite to a dinner party. By the way, Shakespeare, they totaled them up recently. Shakespeare's way ahead of everybody else. Um, so I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot, but it's the kind of question I also know that you, you could answer. What's your dream, I, I, I assume, literary dinner party, uh, living or dead? Pick three guests. Well, I was going to say Vladimir Nabokov, but... Um Though though his novels were tremendously Im important to me, um, and he was a, a, an erudite person, he also was known to be terrifically 
um, grouchy uh, <laughs> and uh, and and kind of harsh in his way. So I, I'm going to say no to Vladimir Nabokov. I would have to say Jane Austen would be there um, be, because there are many dinner parties in in her books. Uh, similarly, I might pick um, uh, Karen Blixen, Isaac Dinesen, uh, who who wrote the material behind Babette's Feast. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I have to say I have to say yes to John Updike um, because <laughs> his uh, his genteel articulateness was so freakish um, that I would just love to hear some of those perfect multi-clause sentences um, roll impromptu off his tongue over a glass of whiskey. Doesn't Nicholson Bigger describe seeing him eating turkey at a Hojo's or something? Uh, and it seemed like he was really enjoying that stringy Howard Johnson's turkey. So like, he'd be very impressed if you gave him something nicer than that. Uh, but I have to say, MFK Fisher, I, I mean, obviously I could go on in here. Because yeah. MFK Fisher wrote so, uh, so beautifully and poignantly about food, she'd have to be there too. All right. So we have to stop, uh, but uh, we are going to talk more about dinner parties later in the show. Rand Richards Cooper, fiction writer, contributing editor at Commonweal and the restaurant critic for the Hartford Current and host extraordinaire. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Colin. It's supper time. Yeah, it's supper time. Oh, it's sup, sup, supper time. Very best time of day. It's supper time. Yeah, it's supper time and when supper time comes can supper be far away support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages Dr. Laura Saunders a psychologist from Hartford Healthcare's Institute of Living talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Pretty babies in the kitchen, this glorious day. Smell the gravy simmering nearly half a mile away. Lady morning glory, I say good morning to you. Chirpy little chickadee told me that my baby is true. She really went to get the frying pan when she saw me coming. Gonna taste it for it. I can listen to Joe Williams sing for a long, long time. So, I have to say one other thing about that song. I'm only saying it to older people, all right? I'm not saying it to young people because it will mean nothing to them. But that song was written by Steve Allen. See, I told you it wouldn't mean anything to you. All right, so it's time to talk a little bit about the history of the dinner party. I alluded to, to, to it at the top here, but Julia Skinner uh, is a culinary historian and food writer whose work includes the book Our Fermented Lives, 
I should check the index, see if I'm in there. Uh, and uh, she's also here to talk to us about the past, the present, and perhaps the future of the dinner party. Julia Skinner, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So through history, I mentioned this at the top of the show, but through history, there's a way in which dinner parties are a bit of a flex sometimes, uh, particularly, I mean, in, in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, well, we should begin by just letting you say Greco-Roman culture is kind of the first time we really see something that could conceivably wear the name dinner party, right? Yeah, I mean, Greco-Roman culture and in um, in ancient Egypt, uh, both you see, but in, you know, in that time and kind of that, you know, that space, yeah, we see uh, the first, yeah, what we would call a dinner party emerge. And they have sort of, they have space for it. They have, um, the, the Greeks, I think, seem to have benches that only men sit on uh, and young people sit on the floor and women stand. Uh, by the time we get to the Romans, there's room on the bench for women as well. But it also seems to be, and, and one of the evidences we have of this is the Satyricon by Petronius, this idea that if you particularly maybe are nouveau riche, if you are an arriviste, um, this is a way to make your statement to society about how much money you've got, what you can possibly afford to do, what sorts of excesses you might be able to commit yourself to. And I think not only in ancient Rome, but it becomes kind of a pattern, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, no, I like this phrasing you're using of it being a flex because it really if we look at the dinner party in various times in history, that that sort of flex to varying degrees is very much there. You know, like I can afford all these ingredients. I can afford, you know, the best China, um, the best, you know, whatever. And so they definitely started flexing in that way, but that was not unique to them. Um, there's, you know, the like the history of like people renting pineapples and having them on their tables at dinner um, <laughs> here in the South. Like, you know, there's there's all of these different examples of, you know, I can get better stuff than you and this is a good way for me to show it off. Yeah. And I think in, uh, another thing, I don't know if you've watched this, but the, the series The Gilded Age, I mean, first of all, in movies, just generally speaking, adaptations of Jane Austen or things like Gosford Park, Downton Abbey, Upstairs, Downstairs, you see the amount of time and attention that is placed on the dinner party, often by not the people who are going to be sitting down at the table, but by a whole bunch of other people who are going to be cooking the food and serving it. But in the series The Gilded Age, uh, which I think has run on HBO, you see in particular another nouveau riche Araviste played by Carrie Coon, uh, who wants to make a huge splash uh, in American society, in New York society, and does things like steal a butler or something. And then there are these incredible debates about, I guess there were two different ways of setting a formal table at that moment, and you could see the two butlers having arguments about it. I mean, this was how you conveyed status, right? Yeah, so the Victorians are very interesting and kind of that, you know, late 19th, early 20th century period of time is really interesting to think about because, I mean, the Victorians, you know, when we think of them now, we still have this perception of like, you know, lots of rules, very formal, kind of stuffy and, you know, but also a lot of kind of extra elegant, you know, stuff going on. Um, and we see that with the food too and with the dinner parties. I mean, 
and having having the right forks and the right plates and the right you know all of the different utensils and everything was a very important part of conveying status because if you did not if you didn't have the right stuff then it was clear that you were like oh you're not you know you're not one of us you're you know it was part of this kind of like class based you know inside outside sort of code and so you know if i if i went to a victorian dinner party and i you know used my lettuce fork on pickles you know people would you know they'd be all aghast they wouldn't know what to do with about about it um, but yeah thankfully we've calmed down a little bit since then no i still can't handle that when somebody uses the lettuce fork on a pickle and that's yeah, a pickle it's fork. very upsetting right but <laughs> as you as you're suggesting this is another thing that happens is that the table setting becomes incredibly variegated that it becomes this, a set of rules that is almost inscrutable uh of what you use and when you use it and where it sits on the table and and all that but meanwhile i mean that's sort of among the one percenters. Um, meanwhile, there's another thing that's happening that uh, I would assume kicks in a little bit uh, in the Victorian period, a little bit as a result of the Industrial Revolution. The numbers of people who could conceivably have, for example, a dining table uh, and some matching plates to put on it, that starts to increase, I assume, during the Industrial Revolution as there just are, there's a different group of people who can maybe amass those kinds of resources. Uh, yes, and it was, but it has roots a little farther back. So if we look at, you know, so let's talk about the Middle Ages and you have, you still have those big, long, you know, mm -hmm. kind of tables in this big, great hall where everybody sits. I mean, again, we're talking about rich people here, right? Um, and then when we go forward a couple hundred years, um, you know, say 1600s or so, people start to have separate rooms with a smaller dining table in it and hosting smaller parties. And then... So there's kind of a social precedent for that, even if it is among the wealthy, that kind of mentally prepares, you know, people as a collective to think about, oh, dinner party doesn't have to be, you know, everybody at this giant long table in a huge room, like it can be something smaller. Um, so yeah, when then when we start to amass more wealth, growing middle class, all of these things... Um, yeah, you see that sort of uh, that sort of party becoming more common. Um, yeah, in like middle class households too. Yeah, and it's interesting how it evolves, and it may evolve a little bit differently in Europe uh, and and England than it does in the United States. Because my sense has always been that when Jefferson uh, creates Monticello and there's a dining room, people are going, "Whoa, it's just like a." A whole room where there's a dining table. That's the whole part, point of the room. There, there's a sense that he is doing something that's uh, maybe not exactly a flex, but he's making maybe some kind of statement, possibly one that that he understands is is coming over from Europe. Mm -hmm. It's probably a little bit of a flex, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think in Europe, yeah, they had much longer traditions of that. I mean, you know, just because they had longer traditions of having you know these sorts of dinner parties in you know, in the dominant cultures there. Um, whereas in the U.S., yeah, it was much more common in um, starting in, yeah, the Victorian period, Industrial Revolu <clears throat> Revolution, all of that. So I, 
I assume maybe the biggest boom in democratizing of this idea of a dinner party is post-World War II. Uh, you have uh, a sudden onset of affluence. You have people who've kind of expanded their understanding of what the world consists of. Um, and you also have a whole industry uh, and, and advertising um, attached to that industry to sell people stuff that they can there then exhibit their ability to be gracious hosts with right there's I assume that sort of Eisenhower era the 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 baby boom the original baby boom period is a great time for new dinner party hosting. Yeah, I mean, but it's still a part of a longer theme of, you know, like, like you and Rand were talking about this, like bringing people over this flexing, you know, but like also connecting with people. And so it is you have a new boom in that you have maybe different dishes being served. We do start to see around that time a little bit of a move towards the slightly more casual dinner party. Like we're still talking about people sitting down at the table have you know having their plate and their you know kind of their own um table setting but it's not you know it's not quite as intense as a victorian dinner um and so we're starting to see a little bit of a move towards the the more casual dining during that time but it's still yeah i mean it is still very much a flex of like look i have you know i have all these nice new appliances look at this fancy stove that i have look at this you know nice new table um yeah, still definitely a bit of that. And and um, I, I think also there's the ritual of the dinner party starts to become a little bit more ingrained. Not the Downton Abbey ritual, which includes the what the men staying at the table and the women going someplace else or whatever the hell they do uh, <laughs> and cigars and all this stuff. But this sort of idea that people arrive, there's a cocktail hour, then you go to the table, all that stuff starts to maybe be, once again, a little bit more democratized, more people kind of have access to that idea. What I'm wondering about, Julia, is the thing that is in some ways the beating heart of this episode, which is how well all of that is traveling into the 21st century, uh, how well it's traveling into 2023. Um, it, it has been suggested in various places that millennials, just for a, a, a welter of different reasons, are not going to do at least some of that stuff. You know, I think this is interesting because, you know, when you when you, you know, do historical research, you have the advantage of seeing that these things naturally change over time. You know, that a tradition doesn't have to stay completely static to remain a tradition. And so I think thinking of dinner parties in terms of the undergirding things that, you know, make them dinner parties. So in our case that would be you know, bringing people together and kind of having these gatherings and maybe maybe the flex part of it either, you know, morphs or shifts or kind of goes away a little bit. Um, but, may, you know, maybe not. Maybe it just appears in different ways. Um, but I think, you know, the gathering people together um, is, you know, we're, we're never going to stop doing that. We're never going to want to stop eating with our friends, you know, whether we officially call it a dinner party or not. And, and yeah, I mean, I feel as though millennials will experiment with this. I, I mean, in a way, everybody has. And if you go through the decades, there's different things and different things getting served and stuff like that. But I'm also wondering, and, and millennials won't stay young forever, so we don't really know what they're going to be like when they're 50, 
55, 60. But I think there's been a striving, and this was alluded to a little bit with Rand, for a kind of perfection, right? Um, I'm going to set up my table really nicely. I'm going to make some wonderful Julia Child dish, um, that kind of thing. Uh, the the cooking's going to be impressive. The wine's going to be impressive. It almost doesn't seem sustainable for post-recession millennials to think that way. And it also doesn't even strike me to, I don't know that much about them, but it feels like it's maybe not even going to be in their nature to think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I don't want to speak for all millennials, but being one, um, you know, I think that, you know, we, we tend to have, you know, a lot of us kind of came, you know, came of age at this time when, yeah, like you said, maybe priorities are shifting, finances are shifting, like, you know, the world maybe looks a bit different. Um, one thing that I definitely have noticed is that there's maybe still sometimes people will strive for perfection, but kind of in different ways, you know, maybe they'll try to like try a different format of, you know, hosting a meal or something like that. But what I really notice is much more of a collaborative effort. So maybe people cooking together, having more potlucks, um, you know, something where there's kind of a collective effort towards making rather than, you know, you all come to my house, I've spent all day cooking, <laughs> now I set everything in front of you, you eat it, I clean it all up, um, <laughs> which I'm very grateful I don't have to do very much of. Right. I I, I think that is a lot healthier uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, on the other hand, I think in the pre-interview uh, with McCusker, you might have mentioned like a kim kimchi making party. I don't know. I don't know if I want to have to like go to somebody's <laughs> house and then make kimchi. But then I'm old and and ossified. <laughs> I mean, I the kimchi making parties are a little different because you're actually you're all preparing food, and kind of that's the point of the party is the preparing less than about you know than eating what you prepare at least right then mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean i you know I, I think i so i personally i struggle with this because like you i don't um i don't like to have people in the kitchen mm -hmm. right when i'm cooking i don't want to have you know everybody um in there talking with me and so um you know cooking together uh you know in my tiny kitchen at my house here doesn't sound very appealing but coming together and making food in another way, you know, mm -hmm. like if we're outside on the grill or yeah. we're, you know, that we're in another environment, I think that shifts it. And I kind of wonder if maybe having things like the kimchi making uh, parties, the Kim Jong uh, parties, and then, you know, incorporating that with some other, you know, some other dinner party aspect. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many directions it could go, but I think the community element is going to still be the most important. All right, Julia Skinner, final question. Uh, same one, dream dinner party. You can have anybody <laughs> living or dead show up and eat food with you. Who's it going to be? Oh, my gosh. It's very hard to pick. I would have a very long list, but the first that come to mind, top of my head, are Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite ah. authors, um, Julia Child, one of my favorite chefs, and also, of course, a uh, fellow namesake, 
Um, and then David Zilber, who um, does a lot of fermentation work and wrote uh, co-wrote the Noma fermentation book because he does a really good job of connecting ideas in food with ideas, you know, in other kind of aspects of our life. And I think those three would be very interesting to hear in conversation. So is Neil going to leave Amanda at home? I'm just like wondering how that's all going to work out. Uh, I mean, I guess he, he can bring her along. All right. Be great. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, Julia Skinner, a culinary historian, food writer, whose work includes the book Our Fermented Lives. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about, among other things, disasters. Make sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. And that was the voice of Kat Pastor, who's our technical producer today and most days. Uh, today's show was produced by McCusker. Here's a fun fact that uh, just came out recently. McCusker and I, <laughs> I have both sung as, as children from the stage, different stages, the song Food, Glorious Food from Oliver, which you heard uh, going out of that last segment. So uh, I don't know why anybody would care about that, but, but I do. Uh, all right. Uh, it's kind of interesting, too. Another coincidence is our next guest is a good friend of our last guest. Uh, Nandita Gudbole is the author of several cookbooks, including, I'm going to screw this up. That's not part of the title. Uh, Masaledar, uh, Classic Indian Spice Blends. She also uh, writes the blog, Curry Cravings. Nandita, welcome to our show. Hi there. So you, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about about other people's disasters. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. And, but you you cook with a certain amount of pressure. You, you uh, run in the past, and I think maybe now in the present as well, uh, these supper clubs in Atlanta and L.A. where people buy tickets to attend. So that's, you know, kind of a certain amount of pressure on you uh, making a seven to eight course meal. And as I understand, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead, react to that, yeah. No, that's yes. And I actually was talking to people and uh, San Francisco is kind of getting added into that mix as well, because I, I go there often. Well, there are foodies there, too. So and great, yes. great ingredients and stuff like that as well. Um, so we should say that one of your first adventures of this kind did include mm-hmm. a disaster, not of your making. Explain that. Yes, this was Mother Nature telling me that um, I really needed to get my game um, on and do it well. We threw a dinner party in and in the early part of my food uh, space career, and um, there was a thunderstorm that night, um, and lightning struck and burnt the house down to that was close to the entrance of our neighborhood. And essentially, there were four fire trucks uh, that kept any guests from coming in. It was a pretty uh, violent thunderstorm. Um, Pretty much all of Atlanta was getting uh, pummeled with rain, monsoon rain. And we had to redirect our guests uh, to walk through the rain through a different neighborhood just so that they could make it in. 
And how do you save the day with that? Uh, we walked out with umbrellas and towels, and I made big, big pots of masala chai. <laughs> and, you know, we sat around and laughed about it. It was one of the most memorable dinner parties I've ever had. Right. And I think there's a one of the big lessons in there is it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure you had a moment of terror, uh, but it also sounds like you relaxed into it. Uh, and and it, a lot of the problems with dinner parties that feel like disasters happen, A, because something goes wrong, but also because people tense up because it's a performance to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think that that's um, one of the biggest challenges is that we as a, as a society have started putting pressure on ourselves about what we want to achieve out of a dinner party. Um, I want to add something from um, and tag on to Julia's conversation from earlier, like um, in Ayurveda in Ayurvedic text, uh, way back in the third and fourth century, there were rules for how a plate was being set and what were the rules of engagement at a dinner or a meal. And these are ingrained in our psyche about what is perfect and what isn't perfect and how should it go and what course comes after which course. Uh, So keeping all of that in mind, it becomes quite a challenge for most people to think about how they're going to go through this process. But if there are two parts of it. A dinner party is about people and food. And your your job as a host is to kind of orchestrate that so that everything goes smoothly. Part of the stress that most people have is logistically not being feeling prepared enough or trying out really complicated dishes that have a lot of weight and expectations attached to them. Um, for instance, if you have never made a dish and that's the dinner party is not the best day to start um, practicing those skills. So you're adding more undue pressure to yourself. So just kind of easing into uh, into your own strengths and saying to yourself, it's all going to be OK. It's going to be great. We're gathering as friends or, we're you know, for me, it was uh, a work pressure. But we're gathering and we just have to think ahead. And of course, you know, we can't anticipate Mother Nature intervening, but um, that could happen. So (laughs) just think on your feet and move on. And everybody understands. I don't think we are living in the Roman ages where someone's going to turn up their noses at you. Um, Yes. One thing we learned just talking around the office is not only should you not be trying to make a a dish for the first time, probably, uh, (laughs) you probably shouldn't, we just learned from one of our colleagues, uh, try to use your newly purchased outdoor grill for the first time uh, because uh, she had the experience or her or now ex-husband had the experience of not being able to operate the grill at all uh, and and kind of melting down over that. So yeah, don't don't do anything you haven't done before. And it sounds like you're saying two things about this. One of them one thing is keep it relatively simple, or at least simple enough mm-hmm. so that it matches your your skills and your comfort level. Uh, Absolutely. And also prepare like hell. I mean, just sort of make sure that you, I guess you do spreadsheets and stuff to make sure you have the right ingredients. Uh, yeah, I used to OCD over this. Um, I had I would actually have a spreadsheet on my refrigerator the week that we would have a dinner party. Again, remember, this is not everybody. I was doing it full work, so I needed it to be perfect. I didn't have staff. I was doing everything alone. So I didn't have anyone to delegate to. Um, and I had, and at that time, I had a little, you know, 
um, child in elementary school and I was parenting. And so you're juggling all these things and you're like, oh my God, I don't need to go to the grocery store five times. Mm -hmm. So I would literally create a spreadsheet the week before and say, these are my 15 dishes. And I had 15 dish dinners. So I would really need to know what I was doing. Mm. And I would have these, uh, you know, dishes and I would choose all of my dinners were themed. All of my dinners are themed. So I have a lot of like, you know, staples and I would reach in and create these masalas or blends. Um, You know, incidentally, uh, Masalizar has some of those blends and I would rely on them to make an easy dish come together really quickly also, that is very, very flavorful. Not a lot of work goes into the actual dish. The work is done beforehand. And that is, you know, kind of respecting your own sanity and respecting your time and what you can give to something. Um, that just would make my life a lot easier and run through the through the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> These are the things I need from this section of the grocery store. These are the things I need from, you know, from the dairy aisle yeah. or what have you. And at the end, I would even have, you know, a, a column that would say, these are the things I can make ahead and put away up to two days in advance, three days in advance. Mm-hmm. So on the day of, all my food was being cooked on the day of, everything would come out of the refrigerator and I was, it was ready to go, made fresh that morning. And... I would have very few leftovers because I had thought it through. Yeah. Uh, I'm we're, not we're, thinking you know, we're, that we're, that's... We're almost out of time here, and I want to get your thoughts about one or two things. I do want to quickly say that, you know, I think when we watch movies about dinner parties, mm-hmm. it's usually the behavior of the guests, something that gets said, a fight that breaks out, or somebody confesses mm-hmm. to a murder or whatever. Whereas for those of us living in the real world, it's more, oh my right. God, the sauce is the consistency of peanut butter. How do I thin it? You know, uh, what's mm-hmm. happening here? And and But the, maybe the sort of the exception is um, alcohol. Uh, if your guests mm-hmm. get drunk or I've been in situations where the cook, you know, deals with the stress by maybe that mm-hmm. third, third glass of wine out in the kitchen. So I know it just in mm-hmm. like 30 seconds, you have warnings about that, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, th- there are ways to fix things. There are ways to, um, if you know your your dish, if you've mm-hmm. made it before, you know what could go wrong. So mm-hmm. I think that that really helps. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with people just getting uh getting drunk or you know not understanding the rules of engagement uh, at a dinner party that's always a challenge for the host and you just have to kind of take it in and and know that you need to put you know set the cutoff quantities for alcohol especially when you go to a dinner party so that you're not making an unsavory environment for everybody else. That's great advice. Uh, and okay. that's, that's your responsibility. So now we're really down to our last 30 seconds. Do you think the dinner yes. party is going to survive? Is the dinner party yes. going to Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, it is. I My 20-year-old is in college on campus, and she told me last night she's going to throw a Friendsgiving party. She has no supplies, no nothing. And I said, how are you going to do it? Well, we're going to do a potluck. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, that's, and, and I was thinking about this, that the young people take cues from the adults in their life about how we deal with things like gatherings. Mm-hmm. And those are the rules of engagement. We kind of set the stage for them. Mm-hmm. So if we give them the tools and the the confidence that they can we, do it, I, I they're hate, going to I continue hate, to that. I hate to break in here, but we literally have to go. Uh, N- uh, Nandita okay. Thank you so much for joining us today.